An island that can make Mexico richer goes missing? And then we delve back into the vault of Jason Carpenter's personal stories, where I tell you the one about me, the Scientologist girl, and possibly seeing proof of an afterlife today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you're having a great day too. So we're going to go ahead and jump right into this. This is the Friday episode. This is the episode before the weekend. I guess that's kind of implied by the Friday episode part. Hope you guys have a great weekend, but we got some good stuff for you here today. Now the first story is actually from the Conspiracy Iceberg. It's about middle tier. And again, a lot of stuff in the middle tier, there's definitely something behind it. It's not just word soup. I actually now have come, I've come to the conclusion now that I think most of them do have something connected to it, even if it's kind of lame. But this one's really interesting. So this is on the Conspiracy Iceberg, and it's listed as Isle Bermeja. Bermeja? Bermeja? It's in Mexico, so I think the J is an H. And I think the Isle is probably even spelled differently. Here I have it written down as I-S-L-A. So what is that? Isla Bermeja? (laughs) Okay. Isla Bermeja. The beautiful Mexican island. Now, it doesn't exist. And this is where the controversy comes from. Because this island, we'll just call it the Isle from here on out to spare you guys me saying the name over and over again. The Isle that is listed on the map, which is on tons of maps... Over the course of 200 years, originally it shows up on maps as early as the 1500s, but around the time of the 1700s, it doesn't show up on maps anymore. So, the reason why this is important to Mexico is because this island is farther off the coast and it allows Mexico to expand its borders. The reason why that's important is because Gulf of Mexico has massive oil reserves and the far, I think it's like a two, you have up to 200 miles from your furthest border to where you can drill for oil. That was a treaty that America and Mexico came up with. So if they can say, well, this island is 43 miles away from the Yucatan, they've now extended their oil drilling range 43 miles. And then America goes, what island? Point to the map. They go, this one. And they're like, dude, that map is turning to dust. You can't even touch it. You're wearing those special gloves, and we're in a room that has nothing but UV light. Show me a modern map that has this island on it. And they're like, uh, okay, be right back. They've been searching for this island for a while now. I think it really became an issue because what happened was, it's not on modern maps, but it's on the older maps. And in Mexico, and the Mexican government, when they were looking at the oil rights and stuff like that, some historian or someone came to him and says, hey, there's this island that allows us to push off further. Maybe we should just get photographs of the island and we can extend our borders. So they started sending out planes and boats and stuff like that, and they can't find the island. And they're going off of these old-timey maps. They're, like, in the boat, and they're holding it, and it's, like, in plexiglass, and they're just, like, scanning it, covering it up with an umbrella so the sunlight doesn't hit it. And they're like, dude, we could have just taken a photocopy. Shut up. Try not to get it wet, this 300-year-old map. But they can't find it. And America says it doesn't exist. America actually says it never existed, and we'll get to that in a second. But the Mexican government is still trying to find this island because, again, it's worth a lot of money if they do. So these are the theories. The first off, that the island existed at one point, there was a massive earthquake, and it fell apart. Just like a cookie. Crumbles like a cookie into the ocean, 
that's the end of it. The other one that I saw was global warming. And then the other theory that Mexico has is that the dastardly government of the United States of America bombed the island out of existence. Now, that's a popular conspiracy theory among the people who are looking into this, that the island existed and America just blew it up. The pushback on that, and, and other researchers have said this, because a lot of time and money is, even though like this is a very obscure conspiracy theory for most people, a lot of time and money have been put into finding this island, because it's worth millions of dollars if they can prove it exists. The pushback to America blowing it up, they'd say, well, they could have, but they would have had to do it fairly recently. So for them to be able to blow up an island without the government of Mexico knowing would be kind of hard to pull off. It'd be kind of hard to pull off. So what could it actually be? Did the island actually exist at some time and it was destroyed or that it was destroyed naturally or was destroyed by the U.S. government? Is it some sort of bizarre Mandela effect where everybody doesn't remember the island being there except the Mexican government? Is this bear? Is this there? Is this Mexico's Berenstein Bears incident? What's interesting is when I was reading about this, there is a very kind of mundane answer to this, but it's weird because it opens up another can of worms. One of the theories is that the island did never exist at any point in time, and the reason why it was written on the maps was to confuse your enemies. If they saw a little island in the corner of your map, they could go, oh, we could land there, we could drop troops, or we can put spies there, or this is where they'll have that, and then the island doesn't exist at all. They said that was actually common for cartographers. You're surprised, you're surprised I could pronounce that word. People were saying that back then cartographers would actually make fake places, make fake islands, make fake ravines or whatever to confuse your enemies. Now, it's not really helpful if all you have, if you're lost at sea and all you have is a map and you think you're, oh man, I'm almost there and then there's nothing there. But for the most part, the maps would actually work in deceiving other people, other governments, not your stranded sailors, but other people where your territory was. And what's interesting about it is we actually still do that today in the most common way, but for a different reason. You ever see those, like, Rand McNally maps? And they also have those books. I remember when I was a pizza delivery driver, we had those books of maps. And I don't know if GPS people do it, but I'm pretty sure they do it as well. They put fake roads in their maps. I know I know for certain that the printed map books have fake roads in them. And I'm pretty sure GPS also will insert a fake road here and there. And the answer is really simple of why. It's copyright protection. Maps themselves, geographical locations, cannot have a copyright on them. And what was happening was people were, companies were putting all this time and money into creating these maps of local areas. And then another company would simply, not like photocopy, the copy, they didn't just run it off on a black and white Xerox, but they were copying the maps and then releasing them saying, oh no, this is my book. And I didn't put any of the money into building the map in the first place. So map companies started putting in fake roads, fake courts, little areas that don't exist that you wouldn't notice at all if you lived in that neighborhood. But the person who made the map would go, that's not, that is a fake street. I made that street up. That street doesn't exist. But let's put those two things together now. We know that we do it today for copyright reasons. They put in fake streets. And I think the reason why they still do that with GPS software, because it's the same problem. Someone could just take all the data from one GPS company and put it in another. A map company is what I mean, not necessarily GPS, but you know, they have like the Google Maps and stuff like that. Those fake roads that are there, 
I imagine it playing out like this in this weird sort of way. A man has a house on a street. He's lived there all of his life. He goes to work, raises his kids, all of that stuff. And then one day, he realizes that the street that he spent his entire life living on doesn't exist. It never existed. It was a little line drawn by a map maker for copyright protection. How would you reconcile that? He would have proof in the form of a map saying, no, my street is here. I mean, I know this gets into horror movie territory, but is it possible that by just through the power of thought and will, by drawing this map and putting this little island on here that so many people are searching for, that's never been found and never been recorded being sighted other than on those maps, is it possible that someday that island will be found and there will be people on it who wondered, what are you guys so worried about? We've always been here. We went to Mexico all the time and we met you. Why are you guys looking so confused? Now, of course, horror movie scenario. Twilight Zone-ish. But I think when you start messing with reality like that, when you start putting stuff in to reality that shouldn't be there, that's not supposed to be there for simple reasons, who knows what can result from that? Who knows what can result from that? But let's go ahead and move on to our next story. Now, our next story also has a bit to do with the power of the mind. So... For our next story, like I said, we're going to go back into the vault of my personal experiences. This one's always been a little weird to me, and I've never known really where to place it in the Partheon of... Is it Partheon or Pantheon? Anyways, in the big building of Jason Experiences. But a little way to begin it. So, my dad was a Southern Baptist minister as I was growing up. And he was also going to college to be a minister as well. So it's like you can preach at individual churches, but like for the Southern Baptist, there was like you got ordained and then you could do this whole college thing. So he had to learn like Latin and Greek and Hebrew. He was got fluent in that. He had to learn all about biblical history and philosophy and counseling and stuff like that. He had to go on and get his bachelor's degree and his doctorate and all that stuff. But at the time, I was about seven years old in the story. So that's going to place us around 1983. 1984, my dad was also a chaplain because he was preaching at a church. He was going to school, and you still, ministers don't make a lot of money. He also had a job working at a hospital as a chaplain. Now, I remember once when I was a kid, my dad said, Hey, Jason, come with me to this thing I got to do at the hospital. And I don't remember why. I don't know if we didn't have a babysitter or what was going on. But for whatever reason, I go with my dad. Maybe I just want to spend time with my dad. Me and my dad, he was a big sports guy. He did really into sports. And I wasn't. So it was maybe it was a bonding. It was definitely a bonding experience. So we he takes me to the hospital and he's like, here, go in this room with this nice doctor and he'll put a coat, he'll put on this snuggy coat for you. And I'm like, no, daddy, no. He's like locking me in. But no, no, no. So he takes me to the hospital. And I don't remember the exact sequence of events of how he got here. I do remember being a little kid. And basically, to jump to where, because I'm not going to say, and then I went to a vending machine. Mm, that soda sure was good. Coke Classic. Like, I mean, it was a bunch of mundane stuff. But the way it happens is I end up in a room. My dad is there giving, not giving last rites, because that's not what Southern Baptists do. But he was basically counseling this man who was dying. 
And he was like in hospice for a while and stuff like that. And the man's family was there. And I don't know what he was dying of, but it was something that they could predict. And he was basically, it was his last night on earth. And I remember I was standing in the room, this little chubby boy. And there was probably maybe like eight or nine other people in there that are his family members plus my father. And I was the youngest. Everyone else was an adult. The man who was dying was much, much older. So his kids were all older. Things like that. And so I remember at one point my dad says, I'm going to have some private words with him. So if you, everyone could step out for a second. So we all kind of shuffled out into the, the hallway of the hospital. And I'm standing out there in the hallway and everyone's just kind of milling about talking. And I remember specifically, this is where my memory really picks up. I'm leaning against the, the wall of the hallway. And standing next to me is his adult son, who was probably around my age, maybe a little younger now. So he might have been like late 30s, early 40s, maybe. I didn't ask him for his ID, but I'm sitting there. I'm standing there with my back against the wall, and he's standing there back against the wall, too. And basically, we were both sons. We were both sons there with our father. And we start chit-chatting, just... You know, did you watch Transformers? No, I don't know exactly what we were talking about, but it was just like a casual conversation in the midst of what was going on. That went on for a couple minutes, and then my dad came out of the hospital room, and he goes, it's time. And everyone shuffles back in, and I stay exactly where I'm standing with my back against the wall. And my dad goes, he pokes his head back out of the hospital room and goes, I want you to see this. So he leads me into the hospital room, they shut the door, and there I am, seven years old, watching this family sob around a man I never met before, and him just going, it's okay, it's okay, I'm going to heaven, guys. I'll see you there. Don't cry. It's okay. It's okay. So that was the first time I'd ever seen anybody die. But it wasn't the last And the story I'm about to tell you wasn't the last either, but it leads into an interesting event. So, now we're going to jump ahead. I believe in this story, I think I'm probably like 19 or 20. 19 or 20. I used to, gasoline was like 99 cents a gallon. So, I, I love being alone. I love solitude. I believe there's a reason why every major religion and most philosophies give great wait to isolation and being alone. So many of them, when their great leaders go out to discover these things, they walk into the wilderness by themselves. There is something very, very powerful about being alone, which humans don't like. It makes them nervous. We're a social species, so when we are removed from the group, it makes us nervous, but I love it. I love being alone. Gasoline was 99 cents a gallon. I used to just fill up my gas tank and drive around Sacramento three, four hours a night. I loved it. I was driving down Hazel Avenue. If you know the area, if you don't, that's fine. But if you want to reconstruct the events this night, I was driving down Hazel Avenue. I was going through, leaving Citrus Heights, going through Gold River, and was headed towards Rancho Cordova. There's just straight shot. And it's all suburban areas out here. It was probably like two in the morning. I'm driving down the road, and I see smoke in the middle of an island that's separating. Northbound and southbound. 
If you ever come across the car accident, it doesn't look like ordinary smoke. It almost has this weird... It doesn't look like billowing smoke like out of a house so it's like basically this weird sort of like mixture of like maybe steam or when an airbag goes off it gives off this big like like this powder type thing but i'm driving down the road and i see basically it's almost like a mist type of thing unless the car is straight up on fire driving down the road i see a car that is facing sideways So the headlights are headed towards the northbound side, and the tail end is headed towards the southbound side, and the car is impacted into a tree on the island. This is before a lot of people had cell phones. I definitely didn't have one. I pull over. I hop out of my car. At that point, there are two other people there. It's dead of night. Pull over. I hop out of my car to see if I can help anybody. I'm walking up to the car. It was this black, sporty car, maybe a Honda or something like that. I walk, I see two people over by the driver's side, and they're talking to the driver. And the car, the front end is just mashed. So what happens, they were coming down, uh, looked, and then they jumped onto the island, hit the tree, and then spun a bit. And that's why it was facing weird. I see two people talking to the driver, and so I'm walking around to check on the passenger. And as I'm walking over there, I can hear the driver going, Oh my god, I can't move, I can't move, I can't move. Screaming. And I walk over there, and the two people in the car, they're two young women, younger than, older than I was then, but younger than I am now. I would assume, I would say maybe like 26, 27, somewhere around there, mid-20s. I get to the passenger side, and I look, and I can see the driver, and she is just, her head, her her body, is she's still sitting up, she still has a seatbelt on, so she's not slumped over, but she's not moving her arms. She's just screaming at the top of her lungs, I can't move, I can't move. I had more pressing concerns because she's screaming. She has two people trying to calm her down. They can't touch her because they don't know what happened. The car's not on fire, so it's not a rush. I think one of them ran off to go get a payphone to call the inevitable ambulance that's coming. But I'm standing now at the passenger seat, and I'm looking in, and there is a young woman, both women dressed up for the clubs, out having a good time, hair done up, everything like that. I'm looking at the woman in the passenger seat, and her head, she's looking at me. Her head is leaned over, and she's like looking out the passenger window. And she's not moving either. But I'm looking at her right in her eyes. I'm watching her. And she's just staring. And then she's gone. When you see somebody die... People go, it's like shutting off a light bulb. No, it's not, because you can turn the light bulb on. It's like if you shut off a light bulb and it turned into a peach. It becomes something completely different, and you can just look at it and you go, oh, they're dead. They're completely different than how they were before. It's the most bizarre thing in the world. Because it's not just like something being shut off, it's like something being turned into complete inanimate matter. And can never be turned back into what it was. And I stood up right when I realized she was dead. I just kind of stood up and looked at her. And I realized, well, there's nothing I do for her. She just died. I know for a fact that she had just died. So eventually another car pulls up, even before the ambulance. And these guys get out who were with them at the club. They were either friends or they were dancing with these girls or whatever. And this one dude is in complete hysterics. And he's like, oh my god, oh my god. 
She has kids. She has a husband at home. This can't be happening. This is totally freaking me out. And I had now I had to calm him down. Because he's not helping the situation at all. He's just totally freaking out. And I'm like, dude, it's okay. No, the ambulance is going to come. They're going to be... T-. I knew the one woman was already dead. That woman looked like she was paralyzed. But you just got to lie to people a lot of times in these situations. Oh, no, it's, it's fine, man. Don't worry, but no, no, it's cool. She'll, she'll see her kids again. They'll come visit her at the hospital. It'll be no big deal. Just flat out lying to this dude. Ambulance shows up. I think the fire department showed up as well. They had to pull the door open, all that stuff. I got out of there. Because at that point, once I start seeing the emergency personnel show up, I was like, I'm just an obstacle. I'm going to get out of here. Now, I didn't go there saying, oh, I'm going to watch this woman die. It's weird to think that that woman, her entire life, 26 years of life, boyfriends, husband, kids, went out that night clubbing. And the last thing she sees is some just stranger that she's never met before standing outside her window. It, that that is always very weird to me. We had never met before that, and I was the last human being that she ever looked at. But that aside, that bizarre set of circumstances aside, there's a dramatic event, but at the same time, it wasn't the first time I'd seen somebody die. It wasn't even the first time I'd seen someone grievously injured. I was like, okay. But it did, I think that last thought about how... She, that I was the last person. To, that kind of upset me a little bit. Because it's just bizarre. It's just a bizarre set of circumstances. Just to look at someone in the eyes. Is, it was very unsettling. So. Fast forward a couple months. I was hanging out with this girl. When I went to American River College. And we'll, I'll call her Mabel. Because she looked like one of the backup dancers. In that Goldfinger video Mabel. She's really cool. A really good friend of mine. She was a Scientologist. And her parents were Scientologists, and they had the books, and they took the courses and things like that. Now, I had gone to the Scientology, what do they call it, the church, once to watch some orientation video. I was like, whatever. I'm always willing to, like, look into other belief systems. They didn't really speak to me. But Mabel was, like, really into it. And I was her friend. And they were having an auditing workshop, and she wanted me to come with her, because I guess if you brought someone who wasn't a Scientology to this auditing workshop... It was free or something like that. So I was like, yeah, sure. You know, they had free breakfast. They had like croissants and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, it's a fun way to spend an afternoon helping my friend out. We go to the auditing workshop. Now, a quick overview of auditing. And if you're a Scientologist, you may go, no, 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 that's totally off base. It has these other steps. But basically, in a nutshell, is you talk about a horrible experience or any experience you went through. And then the person has you, then the auditor has you do it again and again and again and again, each time in more detail. And basically, you're it's almost like a self-hypnosis or you're basically like working it through to the point where you're like remembering how many ashes were coming off the cigarette butt in this memory. When you're in the church, I believe they use the e-meters during this part, but this one we weren't doing any e-meters. She was just there to get practice on how to audit. So we're sitting there and we're listening to the presentation. I'm eating a bunch of croissants. And then they're like getting their workbooks together. And I'm still eating some croissants. Wasn't on keto back then. And after I'm full of butter and flaky bread, it's time to start. It's time to break up. So Mabel's like, hey, let's do this. Like, I'm super excited. So what memory do you want to work on? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I remember loving those croissants I just ate, but I don't think that's going to work. I don't know. And I remember sitting there for a while and I was thinking, what's a memory that I've had 
that's fairly dramatic, but not too crazy. And my mind went to that car accident. So, again, you go through the story over and over again, and basically what you're, you're cleansing your... I don't want to get too much into the Scientology terms, so basically I'll, I'll break it down into generic terms. You're cleansing your soul of these bad memories by putting yourself there and living through them a couple times, and it's like you're basically like washing yourself of the memory. They, they do something similar to that in um, psychotherapy or psychology, where it's called like immersion therapy, where you just kind of keep going over it until eventually you're like, ah, oh, it's not that bad. They'll do that for war veterans. They'll have super, super realistic uh, FPS shooters where you're not shooting people. You're walking through populated areas. And it's just, it's a, it is a valuable form of therapy in the right hands. And Mabel, this was her very first time auditing. And I chose as her first time auditing a horrific event that involved the death of a young mother and another woman most likely being paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of her life. So we're sitting there. And she goes, tell the story. And I told the story pretty much how I exactly told it to you. I mean, obviously not exactly, but the same sequence of events. And I tell her the whole story. It takes maybe like 10 minutes like I did. And she goes, okay, now tell it to me again with more detail. And that's why the story does have a lot of details even now when I told it. Was because I remember a lot of the details that I remembered back then. And I'm like, I remember, and then I, but I did remember additional stuff. I was like, I do remember, like, the crunch of my boots on the ground, the mist, the mist coming out of the car. That was something that I remembered through the auditing because I was focusing on the event over and over again. I remember my boots hitting the ground. I remember it being a bit cold. I remember that she was wearing a short skirt. Like, it was definitely a clubbing skirt. The, the, The driver had on, like, an electric blue top a tight top, the passenger had a tight miniskirt on, black top. I'm remembering all of these details that pop out that didn't pop out the first time I had told the story. And she goes, okay, tell it to me again. And I'm basically, I'm reliving this event over and over again with the first-time auditor. And she, I don't think, is picking up that I'm starting to get a little distressed because I'm putting myself back in the situation over and over again. But what the, the reason why this story is on Dead Rabbit Radio... There was one last time I told that story to the auditor. And she goes, and every time you have to start from the beginning. And she goes, okay, do it again. I'd probably already done it like four or five times at this point. She goes, okay, tell me the story again with more detail. And so this time I'm super concentrating on every single detail. Stuff that I missed the first four or five times. I'm trying to relive that event in such a realistic form that I'm remembering things I didn't remember four times earlier telling it. And I walk her through the sequence of events just like I did you. The debit card laying on the ground from the purse flying out the window. Those really minor details. And when I get to the part where I walk to the car and I'm staring at her and she's staring at me and I'm watching her and she's watching me. I see what could only be described to me. So I remember I'm back in this moment. I've put myself, when you're, first you tell the story, but then since you're looking for details, you're mentally going back to that moment. I walk to the car, I turn around, I'm looking at her, she's looking at me, the woman's screaming, the people are talking, and for a brief second, for a brief, brief second, what I see is her soul leave her body. 
Now, not only that, what I remember seeing through this auditing process was, I'm looking at her, she's looking at me. A translucent blue version of her, this is going to sound ridiculous, but a translucent blue version of her lifted itself slightly out of her body, began banging on the window in panic, and then shot into the sky. And then I stood up and knew she was dead. And I sat there. I didn't tell her that. I didn't tell Mabel that. She goes, and I'm telling the story again, and I get to the part where I go, I look in the window, and then I open my eyes, and I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. She goes, are you okay? I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like this, I, I, I appreciate this, your time, and I think that you have your skills doing this auditing thing, but I don't want to tell that story again. I don't want to tell that story again. I was distressed. We didn't leave. We stayed. I got some more croissants because there was like an after workout shit thing. But I was, I was, uh, I was a little disturbed by that. And I told her later on, a couple days later, I told her what I saw. And I said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that again. And she said, she, she apologized. She goes, I should have told you to pick something better. Because again, it was my first time and it was your first time. I should have asked you to pick like a spanking or something like that. Is that why I knew she was dead? Did I... See, the thing is, like, now with that story, that... Her ghost coming out, looking at... Her ghost comes out of her body, her soul, whatever you want to call it, comes out of her body. It looks exactly like her, but it's like a blue, translucent figure. I see her fist bang on the window super fast, and then she shot up into the sky. And then I stand up. So I, that part of the memory has become ingrained with the factual version of the story now. Can't remember one without remembering the other. It's an interesting note because is that what I saw? Is it when people say, like I said, it's like watching it's like watching someone flick a switch and a light bulb turns into a basketball. Like it you can't, you obviously know that person is dead. Is that what we are seeing? Are we actually seeing their ghost, their soul leave their body? And the only reason why I put that connection because I relived that experience so many times. Was it just my imagination that was making it up? Because I'm close. Basically, I'm in this traumatic event over and over and over again, and my brain wants it to end. So it inserts something so terrifying for me to remember that makes the experience end. I don't know. That's always puzzled me. My, my, I'll tell you right now. My instinct is that it's my imagination because really as much as i believe in a lot of this stuff and i have fun talking about all of it i'm very very skeptical about a good chunk of it and i am even skeptical about stuff like that because there has been stuff that i've experienced in real time that i've looked into and go oh maybe i was just going crazy or something like that this one doesn't even have the benefit of being real time This one has the benefit of me looking back on it and remembering an incident that I didn't see. But did I see it and my mind didn't register it? Did I see it and my mind didn't want to comprehend it? Do we all see it when people die? And because we don't focus back on it and meditate on it, we don't notice it? I don't know. And that's why this has always been one of those weird stories of my paranormal life because it doesn't fit into the normal oh I saw a ghost or I saw something that I thought was a ghost and it turned out to be my scented garbage bags 
This is kind of right in the middle there. I did see the woman pass away. I didn't know when she had passed away. I understood that sequence of events. But then there's this added detail where under intense questioning, a new detail emerged that leads it more to the paranormal. But this is the biggest question I have from this whole story. And this is how we're going to end this week out. If it was her soul, this beautiful blue translucent soul, leaving her body to go up, which is traditionally known as heaven, why was she in a state of panic? DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad that you listened to it today. Have a great weekend, guys.